0: Recode Radio presents Recode Decode, coming to you from the Vox Media Podcast Network. Hi, I'm Kara Swisher, Executive Editor of Recode. You may know me as someone who plans to get rich by selling bulletproof armor for Teslas, but in my spare time, I talk tech, and you're listening to Recode Decode, a podcast about tech and media's key players, big ideas, and how they're changing the world we live in. You can find more episodes of Recode Decode on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Play Music, or wherever you listen to podcasts or just visit recode.net slash podcasts for more. Now in week three of my horrible cold, which is giving me this very scratchy voice today, still we have in the red chair, Chris Hughes, one of the co-founders of Facebook. He's also the author of a new book called Fair Shot, Rethinking Inequality and How We Earn. It argues that working people should receive a guaranteed income, sometimes called universal basic income, paid for by the 1%, like Chris himself. Chris, welcome <laughs> to Rico Decode. Thanks for having me. So, tell me about let me let me go into your background first, because this is a big uh, topic. And the joke I made at the top about bulletproof your Teslas was from a quote that Robert Reich just uh, gave at an event where he said, "You're either going to have to do something like universal basic income, or to the rich, or you're going to have to pay to bulletproof your Teslas." You know, so we'll get into a, a really bad situation of haves and have-nots, and like Brazil or some countries where. The rich have to insulate themselves uh, using security or South Africa or somewhere else. Um, so I, I wanted to explain that. It's not a joke, but it's, it's a very serious issue. Um, but first, let's talk about your background. Um, can you give everybody a quick synopsis of your history?
1: Happily, I'll try to give the, okay. the Cliff Notes version. Right. So, um I grew up in a little town, Hickory, North Carolina, mm-hmm. at the foothills of the Appalachian Mountains. You barely lost the accent that you have. I did a little I bit. Can hear well, it. well, that's part of the story, actually. I, I, my, I grew up there. My mom was a public school teacher. Dad was a traveling paper salesman. But then I got a scholarship mm-hmm. to go to a fancy boarding school, Phillips, Andover, nice. up, in, up in Massachusetts. And it was there where <laughs> It is a where, fancy boarding school. It is indeed. Um, it was there where I, where I lost the accent. And then uh, later got a scholarship to go to Harvard and um, met Mark Zuckerberg freshman mm-hmm. year. We ended up roommates sophomore year. Started Facebook in February of 2004. The rocket ship took off, and my life changed pretty, uh, pretty dramatically. And so I, I, I um, ended up wanting to write the book in order to um, partially tell my story and uh, be clear that the financial reward that I Got from three years worth of work at Facebook mm-hmm. was entirely disproportionate to right. uh, the time and, and effort put in, but to also make the case that that my story, which is nothing but you know it, the only thing we can call it is a lucky break, mm-hmm. is unfortunately not that. Uncommon no, in no, the economy unusual... today, that a small group of people—I might be extreme—but right. I don't think my case is actually that unusual. A small group of people are getting very, very, very
0: wealthy while everybody else is struggling yeah, to make ends meet. Extremely wealthy in some cases. So, you—what um, did you do after Facebook? You left relatively early.
1: I did. So, I left in 2007 and went and worked for President Obama. Right. So it was On back in the stuff. early days of the campaign. I had the um, uh, title director of <laughs> online organizing, which mm-hmm. pretty much meant. Uh, you know, trying to not just build a community uh, online, but create a movement mm. that um, was willing to take the campaign into their own hands—not right. just sort of the hub and spoke traditional sure. model of those campaigns, but instead, people standing up to organize events raise money, knock on doors, make phone calls and Which use the internet to power mean, This had been
0: tried by, actually, the right wing was very good at it. Um, the, the, the conservatives were very good at it, way, way, way back. But this was one of the biggest efforts to do this, and an important part of his winning. Yeah, I think it was, I mean,
1: it was a transitional moment in politics in so, in so <laughs> many ways, but I think the the biggest um, shift was not so much in technology. I mean, we had a social network yeah. called com. The technology was good, but it was in the expectations mm-hmm. that he, the the candidate at the time, and that the campaign around him was interested in, specifically saying, you know, we're not going to try to lock down the message. Right. And just, just, you know, three or four people at campaign headquarters in Chicago are going to figure it all out. Instead, mm-hmm. so we're going to open it up and, and quite literally enable anybody to write anything on Our website, BarackObama.com, right, Right. and it was a symbolic moment, but it it, it mattered because it invited people into the campaign to participate in a way that previously they hadn't really been asked to, and it was symbolic of of a lot of other changes. So we ended up, you know, raising tens of millions, hundreds of millions by the end of dollars through the internet. Had tens of thousands of grassroots events. It was, it was, it was an an important. What got
0: you there? How did you get there?
1: You just liked Obama, or? Well, you know, it was back in two thousand seven,
0: mm-hmm.
1: and um, way back then. Not that so long ago. I know it's not that long ago, but our we'll politics has changed so right. yeah. so dramatically that Absolutely. certainly feels that way. But um, I was working on some of the political products at Facebook, and so uh, mm-hmm. one of the um, people that I got to know was this guy Reggie Love, mm-hmm. who was uh, President Obama's. Body man, Body as, they, man, as right. they're,
0: they're called. and um, That's an unfortunate term, isn't it? it anyway, is, sorry, it is, I just hate that is. word. Um, but he was his assistant. He just he right. went with him everywhere. So
1: anyway, we, we started having conversations um, just like we, we were doing with other candidates and office mm-hmm. holders, how to use Facebook. Yeah. Uh, it became clear that Obama was going to throw his hat in the ring. And then I talked to a few of the other people. I, I did really believe... Um, in Obama's story himself and the promise that he offered and initially I just took a leave but the leave turned into right you know a permanent uh a permanent move did you miss Facebook doing hierarchy. that leaving Facebook did you you know I had um I had mixed feelings about it but my experience was really different than mm-hmm. Mark's and Dustin's I mean Facebook was a cam a, you know a, a a mission in and of itself mm-hmm. for Mark and um, for me, it was a company that mm-hmm. I enjoyed being a part of, growing. Mm-hmm. I learned a lot. It was mm-hmm. exciting. Um, there are all kinds of challenges, but it wasn't. It was clear to me early on that Facebook was not my life's work. It was right. going to mm-hmm. be a chapter, and it turned out to be a very important yeah. chapter. But um, but I felt particularly in two thousand and seven, when George Bush was president, we'd had all kinds of. Um, uh, what I view as unfair economic policies, the war in Iraq uh, and Afghanistan. I mean, it was a time when I was really hopeful that well, the country could and change the, and the corner. And well, at that skills, yeah. At that point, I mean, I, I I moved to the campaign was paid. I think sixty-five thousand dollars. Facebook Chris, um, stock no was all badly for you. <laughs> no, no, no. I know. I'm just being clear. Yeah. I mean, I talk in the book yeah, yeah. about w- when
0: when you went when you, I actually hadn't been,
1: sold some stock and right. didn't make money, and, and what a massive change right, it was. Right. But in that period, right. the move from Facebook sure. to Obama yeah, was you were about a startup. the it was a startup. The, the mission.
0: Yeah, absolutely. So you did that, and then afterwards, have done a range of things. I, I'm sorry to go back in history, but people find it's your fun. background interesting. So you you. Then went on to buy a, a publication. You you did a lot of things. Your <laughs> husband ran for office. He did. Yeah. yeah.
1: I so um, after Facebook went public in twenty twelve, uh, my husband and I made a commitment to use the to to give away the vast majority of uh, the money that we made and to invest that money in um, causes that we mm-hmm. believed in. And so um, the. I started investing in really multiple things. Uh, and on the one hand, I started the journey uh, to cash. Mm-hmm. That is how I sort of ended up writing mm-hmm. the book today and talking about guaranteed income and universal basic income. I also uh, bought a magazine mm-hmm. called The New Republic and uh, decided to invest there because I believe two things that the journalism that uh, the New Republic had done for decades, nearly a hundred years at mm-hmm. the at the time, Was incredibly valuable, uh, important to the world, important to democracy, and also uh, deserved in 2012 a bigger audience than it had historically. Had So, you know, I talk a lot in the book about um, my experience there, because mm-hmm. uh, on the whole, there are more things that I, I regret than... Yeah, a little rocky. It was, uh, you know, more than a little rocky. Those are real rocky. grumpy. I think it's, I'm being I think polite. It's, <laughs> Though
0: those are super grumpy for journalists. I lived well, in Washington. I know those.
1: Yeah, things. but I mean, I also came in guns blazing. Yeah, there. you did. you know I came yeah, in I know better. with the kind of expectation that, you know, if you invest a lot of money, and you bring together smart people, mm-hmm. and you set, you know, really ambitious goals. You know, you can um, you can reach them. I mean, that's what the first two experiences of my career had taught me. I right, mean, between right. Facebook and the Obama campaign, right. they taught me that the the impossible was actually a little bit more possible than one might might think. But
0: you write about it. But what, what do you think the big issue? What's your big mistake and that big mistake? I think it's a group of people that doesn't like the internet in general. Most traditional media, in my experience over the years, has has been resistant. Well, I mean, I think... Or for, grudging, it would be. If I, if I were to do it all over again, I, w-
1: I would take a different approach. Mm-hmm. I, I would not come in and say, you know, the kind of journalism that the New Republic has historically done is necessarily um, made for an audience of tens of millions of people. Yeah. I mean, I came in really thinking that um, w- we could and should open it up to a much broader big kind of have big. audience, a- a- exactly, and um, I-, I think at the end of the day, I-, I was maybe the last to learn what everybody else already knew. The New Republic had been a small artisanal. print magazine, artisanal. We would call yeah, it we had thirty five thousand subscribers, and, they and they that then, wasn't yeah. because you know it, it was because that there's a, 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 a community of people who are politically minded culturally curious, literary, et cetera, but that
0: community is relatively small. Maybe. We'll see what and Lorraine so, Jobs has at the Atlantic. They're doing it kind of a Yeah, well, the Atlantic
1: has a different tradition yeah, the New Yorker has its own. They, they you know, each of these each of these institutions are are distinct. They they make up a a category, but so rather than heading for the fences, I think the the institution would have been better served the people I worked with better would have been better served and the values behind it um, would have been better served if we had made more modest investments if we'd said yeah. yes we're gonna have a good website that you know yeah. uh, is in line with the values of the day but w- we don't need the, the uh, best award-winning iPad app guys mm-hmm. you know like the slickest kind of technology, content management systems yeah. we probably don't need to create a custom one right. from scratch as yeah. we ended yeah. up doing I
0: mean these kinds of things <laughs> you're they, the internet it's, guy it's 2020 someone there and... called you a terrier to me <laughs> what's that? A terrier what does that mean? I don't know don't ask me I, those, I'm sorry everyone in Washington I, there's a reason I left <laughs> Washington and it, part of it was the extreme distaste for the internet no matter what even if it was a relatively good idea well I mean I, I, I'm not I, look you came in with you did come in with guns blazing and those and those people no I mean, when I was like, no, 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 Chris, stop, these these are not the, (laughs) it's like when Pierre Omidyar went into Intercept at the first, I was like, oh, they're real grumpy over there. Um, But it's, uh, you know, it's like Lorraine Jobs is making investments, there's all kinds of internet people making, you know, Jeff Bezos, the Washington Post, seems to have done a very good job of Absolutely. that. Um, so there's I,
1: I op- do, but just one last sure. point on
0: that. I do think it's
1: important, though, to recognize that the kind of journalism that all of these institutions do is really a public good. Absolutely. And, and this idea that, that the market, we, we have to find, um, you know, robust, for-profit, kind of sustainable models for this journalism. Maybe we will.
0: Yeah.
1: Uh, there's a scenario where we don't. Right. And that doesn't mean that it's not important to um, uh, support it. Well, you and have ProPublica. Exactly. Yeah. You do have ProPublica and, um, you know, Texas Tribute. You have yeah, some— Yeah, you have
0: rich people backing these exactly. things. Exactly.
1: And, and, and when I when I started, I, uh, you know, I see you sort of <laughs> rolling the eyes a little bit. My, my initial response was a kind of skepticism. Is that really sustainable? But on the other side of my experience, I think that is in many ways the story of a lot of the high-quality media mm-hmm. in— the the country. I mean, the New Republic had not really ever turned a profit. It was technically a company, but it was really. I mean, I have a line in the book. It was it was a it was a cause dressed up as a company. Yeah. It, it, it was, and and, it, and I think we we culturally need to get a little bit more used to the fact that even if Jeff was losing mm-hmm. an immense amount of, the, of money at the Washington Post, I still think that the journalism is important yeah. to. Yeah, well, uh, you know, it's
0: interesting because to, I, we'll, we'll to get support. to that because you're talking about rich people paying for something like Universal Basic Income, too, uh, there is a duty of public service, and maybe that's the way it's going to be paid for and everyone should stop belly aching over it. You're right, you know what I mean, on some level. So what's your relationship there now? None, or you sold it. No, enough? I sold
1: the, the right. magazine to... Uh uh, Wynne McCormick mm-hmm. in
0: 2016. And well, that's a name of a person who should own the New Republic, sorry. <laughs> Wynne McCormick. <laughs> w- yeah. It's a perfect name. You have a good name, but it's not as good as Wynne McCormick. Not quite
1: as austere, I yes, guess. Yes, yeah, yeah.
0: So, and and you have had nothing to do. Are, do you imagine going into other journalism type things? I, I mean, I, I... You had an interest. I, yeah,
1: and my interest is is still real. I'm I'm focused on specifically income inequality. I, I, have, I have come to believe that... Um, where uh, where the most opportunity lies is in making mm-hmm. the case for cash and and right. specifically for guaranteed income for Americans who are struggling right. to to make ends meet. So that's what I'm most. Um, well, we're going
0: to talk about that in the next section. I just want to finish up with you. And then your husband ran for office. You go from one thing to he didn't win. Right? Well, this that was, was him. A, that wasn't me. Yes, but, but yes, you're involved we are. In
1: it. it turns out we are married. We are married.
0: So <laughs> and, and didn't win. Is he going to run again? Or is that?
1: I don't think so. He's focused on something called Stand Up America, yeah. which is um, an organization that, uh, you know, tries to channel a resistance to Trump's agenda. I and mean, right. there's, uh, uh, you know, it's a, uh, quite the understatement that the energy that uh, the resistance has, um, you know, has cultivated over the past few years is in need of organization. So yeah. what they do is connect the dots. And uh, on Facebook, on Twitter— uh, across email, text message—I mean, you yeah. name it—it's trying to, you know, make sure people are aware of what's happening, particularly when it comes mm-hmm. to the Russia uh, mm-hmm. investigation, but across the board, and then translate that enthusiasm and energy into boots on the ground, door knocks, and eventually, well, hopefully, into electoral thing. votes. I just had an interesting in interview phone. with.
0: Yeah. A- Cory Booker, and I'm going to be talking to Chuck Schumer later today, but I think votes would be the thing that everyone <laughs> needs to focus on, yeah, Beyond yeah. and how to get people to actually step out and vote. That's pretty much it. Uh, yeah, I, absolutely. An understatement of how difficult that is, but it's, it's, it's the only thing that's going to change anything. Um, so then you move to this, this book, and, and what got you interested in uh, the income inequality? A lot of people out here, Sam Altman's interested, there's a An experiment in Oakland. I think there's one in Sweden. They're all over. We have one in Stockton, Stockton, California. So talk about that. Your group has one. You, your what? So my,
1: so my interest in the guaranteed income actually uh, started around uh, around 2012. and and I came in through the international door to start. Mm -hmm. So, you know, my husband and I came into this immense amount of wealth. We made Mm -hmm. this commitment to um, to give. It all away, and so the first kind you of you could have done a lot of things. You could have done a lot of like family well the, foundation. The first yeah. kind of question is is like, well, what's the most effective thing that you can do? Right, and so um, seems like an easy question. It's actually an incredibly mm-hmm. com- a complex one. And so we went on a journey, and I have a chapter in the book that that narrates a, a piece of it to think about um, where are we going to, you know, um, get the most bang for the buck? How can we help people? Uh, in, in the way that is the most effective. And particularly from an international perspective, I looked at a lot of different things and ended up finding Michael Fay and Paul Niehaus, the two co-founders mm. of an organization called Give Directly. And uh, made first gift of $100,000, which um, was you know literally texted mm-hmm. to people living on less than mm-hmm. a dollar a day in mm-hmm. Kenya and um began a journey myself and so um i came to a, the immense amount of evidence that cash is the most effective thing that you can do to improve health outcomes education outcomes mm-hmm. and lift people out of poverty and so
0: giving poor people money is the way to make them not poor it, it, yeah. it, indeed, no, no, okay. and I, I learned that initially
1: through, through, um, through the international lens. But then here domestically, what I discovered is that we actually already have the world's largest cash transfer program. Mm-hmm. I mean, it's called the Earned Income Tax Credit. It's mm-hmm. called a tax credit. What it actually is is a lived experience of it. It's a check right. that tens of millions of Americans get, and it lifts more people out of poverty than, than food stamps, housing vouchers, and unemployment yep. insurance combined. Right Now, it needs to be modernized, I would argue, for the economy that we live in today, not just the income inequality that we have, but also the income instability that mm-hmm. the gig economy has introduced. Mm-hmm. And so, at, at the end of the day, though, it's at once a, a, a belief that I have because of the empirical evidence that shows the effectiveness, and uh, one that I feel like is a, is a moral case. I, mm-hmm. I, I believe that, that The best way to respect the dignity of people and uh, embrace their freedom is through the most fungible thing, is is through cash cash and their ability to to chase their own dreams or figure out their own futures.
0: So you you got interested in it um, through that, just by giving, just by giving. Initially,
1: and what, then what what
0: I try to do that concept because again, there's lots of pull. I'm assuming you get like pecked to death all day of what you should give to and how you can help people.
1: Yeah, and and I, I mean, my husband and I give to array of causes. Right. It's, it's not just cash international. Energy. Right, T rights is an, uh, right. another thing that's important as we were active in the fight mm-hmm. for, for marriage equality, but particularly when it comes to um, income inequality and poverty. Um, when you're on the hunt for what's the most effective thing to do, uh, to do, one of the things that I, I've learned is that sometimes the best solution is the simplest. Right. Of course, we need more and better education. Right. Of course, we need more small businesses to create good jobs. We've mm-hmm. spent decades thinking about those things, investing in those things, and and we should think more. However, sometimes we we overlook mm-hmm. the most powerful tool, the most powerful weapon in the arsenal, and mm-hmm. in, in, uh, yeah. in, in many ways, the simplest. And I think cash, uh, cash can be that. So right. my hope, though, is to take the conversation um, a little bit out of speculating about whether robots are going to take all the jobs in 2040 and, mm-hmm. and yes. driverless cars, and, and situated in the here and now, yeah. because um, income inequality has not been as bad Mm-hmm. As it is today since 1929. Wow. That's
0: amazing. Since the
1: year the Great Depression began. I mean the top 0.1%. Mm-hmm. Not 1%. The top 0.1% owns as much wealth as the bottom 90%. Right combined. right? And so anybody who says, well, that's just the way the economy works, I, yeah. I, I, that is, no, we have chosen the rules that structure this economy, and we have the power to choose different ones. Right. And I think a guaranteed income should be at the center. All
0: right, we're going to talk about that more because it's, it's, it's loaded with so many different things, politics, with everything else. When we get back, we're here with Chris Hughes. He is one of the co-founders of Facebook, but his new book is called Fair Shot, Rethinking Inequality and How We Earn It. We're going to talk more about that and other issues when we get back. This episode is brought to you by MParticle, the customer data platform for every screen. And I'm here with co-founder and CEO, Michael Katz. We know that uh, people are using mobile to research and transact more than ever before, which we've talked about. Um, what's the future of mobile commerce and how does MParticle help its uh, retailer customers like Overstock, Lily Pulitzer, and Jet.com?
2: So the classic notion of a person moving through the funnel is fundamentally broken. Mm-hmm. People may start researching a company's product on their laptop, subscribe to that brand's email newsletter a few days later, get an email which they open on their phone, download the app and complete the purchase. You know, So right there, just trying to map the customer journey, you need to capture data from four or five systems. So brands need to create a uh, consistent and personalized experiences across all these devices and systems and so it starts with having a data platform that was built to ingest data from anywhere, Mm -hmm. create a unified view of the customer. And then, in real time, sync that data out to all the various marketing and analytics tools that the company may use in order to create these experiences. So people
0: are doing very different things all the time.
2: So Absolutely, it to be
0: dynamic as they are using all these devices. For sure. Thank you, Mike Katz of MParticle. Where can we learn more about what you're doing?
2: Go to www.mparticle.com or follow us on Twitter at mparticles with an S. Ah, thank you so much. Thanks.
0: I'd also like to tell you about one of our other podcasts, Recode Media, with Peter Kafka. Peter, who'd you talk to this week?
1: Hey, Kara. I talked to Jason Blum last week at South by
0: Southwest. You should have been there. I know you were at South by Southwest yourself. I'm very busy, so you missed out. So you can listen to this episode. It's an awesome conversation. He's one of the most interesting people I've ever really talked to. He's a really interesting Hollywood producer who made Get Out, all the Purge movies, a million horror
1: movies. He makes them cheap. He makes them um, profitable. And it's interesting that no one else has done that, which is
0: something we talked about at length. And we also talked about what it's like to be up for an Oscar and to not win an Oscar. You will enjoy listening to this for free. Sounds great, Peter. You can find Recode Media on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Play Music, or wherever you listen to your podcasts. We're here in the red chair with Chris Hughes, one of the co-founders of Facebook. But he's talking about income inequality because of his new book Fair Shot Rethinking Inequality and How We Earn It we just talked about his background and how we got to this topic um, let's talk some more about that because there's so many things hanging off of income inequality um there's all kinds of efforts talk about first about your efforts that you're doing in Stockton what's how do you, how do you approach it because again there's lots of different Thoughts about this. And some people think it's, you know, I, I met someone the other day call it communism. Like, you know what I mean? <laughs> like, okay, yeah, kind of.
1: I think of it as capitalism with much better guardrails. Okay. But, so More the, like the that. group that I uh, co run is called the Economic Security Project. Mm-hmm. And what we're trying to do is convene a bigger, broader conversation about how guaranteed income can work in America. Right. If a lot of people are interested in UBI. How might this actually evolve? And there are a lot of people who want to think about, you know, What we can do in the next three years? What can we do in the next five years? So it's a shorter time horizon than. This um, is to
0: solve. Inequality problems right now versus possible job loss. We'll get to that
1: exactly. And so, what we do is we convene a network of academics, policymakers, technologists, artists, all of who are talking about how do we attack this. Mm -hmm. And as part of that, we move money. And so, one of the things that we've done is work to support Mayor Michael Tubbs, Mm -hmm. who is the mayor of Stockton, California. For those of your listeners who don't know, he's 27 years old. He's the youngest mayor of a major American city. Mm -hmm. He's African-American from a city that um, is incredibly diverse. He's uh, the first African-American mayor there in in generations. And he is committed to exploring how guaranteed income can work Mm -hmm. for Stocktonians in the here and now.
0: This is beyond payments from the government.
1: Specifically, what we're doing is supporting a a demonstration of the idea that uh, will provide uh, an income for... To some uh, members of the Stockton community. The community itself will decide who exactly, how much money, the duration, et cetera. Community meetings are beginning this summer, and uh, disbursements are uh, likely to begin in fall. So, what is fall.
0: a disbursement? What, what is it generalized? I know the, the community is deciding this, but there are standards right now growing.
1: Yeah, I mean, one one place to begin, a number that a lot of people talk about is $1,000 a month. Mm-hmm. Uh, others talk about more, mo- I mean, in the book I call for $500 a month, mm-hmm. making the case that um, modest amounts of money can really have outsized impacts and, and go even mm-hmm. further. So um, the the idea, though, is to invite more people into the conversation and move us out of just the realm of theory, might this mm-hmm. be a good idea? Right. Into the practical, the here and now, and we have lots of research already from up in Alaska, where they have a small guaranteed income from the Earned Income Tax Credit. The Cherokee in North Carolina have a guaranteed income, mm-hmm. and not to mention the international stuff. And so, yes, we need more evidence, and we're hopeful that that will emerge. Uh, but the real focus is on the storytelling, right. and um, Tubbs himself, as a as a leader, has. Um, already just in, announce, in announcing this and the work that he's doing brought so many poor so many more people into the uh, conversation both in Stockton and nationwide
0: who gets the money in your gro- in your is that's going to be decided but in general who gets in the poorest correct or not Or working families
1: in stockton it'll be decided it's not by me the, that's gonna by, get by Stocktonians. it's like
0: you know it's like it's not wealthy people or is there a level or who sh- should everybody get it
1: so in the book, I make the case that um, the best way to start with a guaranteed income today is $500 to everyone who's making $50,000 on down. Mm-hmm. So uh, it's a little bit different than a UBI. Mm-hmm. It's, it's inspired by the exact same values of mm-hmm. cash, no strings attached to achieve financial stability, recognize the dignity and freedom of each individual. But um, it's, a, it's a, a more modest place to begin. Mm-hmm. So I make the case that we can and should do this through a modernization of the earned income tax credit. Mm-hmm. and uh, Which
0: goes to what level of people?
1: S- right now, this is part of the problem. It's mm-hmm. so complex. You mm-hmm. know, the people who get it, it depends on how old you are, how many kids you have, whether or not you're married, what state you lived in, mm-hmm. what your wages were like. In, and so what, what ends up happening is that people get, you know, in many cases, quite a lot of money, between five hundred and six thousand dollars a year, mm-hmm. but it, because it's not predictable, right? Because you don't know where it's coming, right. when it's coming, how much you're going to get, it doesn't provide the fundamental stability. financial stability, which is, right. which in my which view, is covering is, the rent, or and, and that's the problem that I see this as really trying to solve in the mm-hmm. here and now. I mean, we know that jobs in America have already come apart. I mean that is what the effects of automation and globalization in particular have done. The, uh, all the jobs in the past 10 years that we've created 94% of them are part-time, contract, temporary, seasonal. They're the kinds of things that yeah, unemployment is near a record low, but the jobs that are out there are not providing the kind of, you know, 40 hours a week, benefits Sickly yes, get worse. V- yeah. retirement benefits, and it's it's very likely to get worse, and
0: and then the elimination of some jobs with some of these technologies you're talking about, some very especially around automation, especially on self driving. There's we don't know we don't. That's the threat knows.
1: that looms, right? Yeah. And that's you know, um, lots of people have predictions, mm-hmm. uh, but in some sense, I mean, my argument is we don't know exactly where the future is going to go, and we can have a, a and should have a conversation about where. Uh, it might lead, but we already know quite a lot about what's already happening mm-hmm. to jobs, and we need a guaranteed income to stabilize the right. lives of, of Americans do, who are working hard. If you're hard someone can, that's it, arguing against,
0: against it, what was what is your argument against if you're—
1: You know, the arguments I hear most often is— um, What's the best one that you'd make if you were against it?
0: Well, the one the one Where that
1: you go, ah, oh, a good point. The one that comes up the most often is education, mm-hmm. you know, particularly in like personal context for me. It's like, you, you know, you you people say, well, you came from you know middle class family, small town North Carolina, you got a great education, and you you did super well for yourself. Isn't that just what we need? You more, drug more yourself education. up. You drug yourself up <laughs> in your modest <laughs> background, right? That's 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 the argument mm-hmm. that a lot of people make, and um, you know, on the one hand, of course, we need better education. There's no question that, you know, uh, education in America, we've invested a lot of money in it and have seen some benefits, but uh, not enough. And and there's an important argument to be made for more education. But what I think we often overlook is that put yourself in the shoes of somebody who's got a, you know, let's say you've got a high school degree, you've been working in a minimum wage job, you want to go back and get retrained Mm -hmm. as, you know, um, for, for really any kind of job. Right now we say, well, clearly we just need more educational opportunities. So that person, though, I was, I was, I'll use a specific example. I was in Ohio um, last summer talking to people who were specifically in this position. They were working in minimum wage jobs. They wanted to get kinds of retraining. So you begin the conversation like, okay, well, why, why aren't you doing that? So first off, where are you going to go? Community college, close to community college, 45 minutes away. You gotta pay for the gas to, mm-hmm. to get there. And the tuition, yeah, it costs $8,000. Well, you can get financial aid. It's gonna cost you $1,000. So mind you, as the backdrop, none of these people have savings. You know, Half of right. Americans don't have. can't find $400 in the course of case of emergency. So mm-hmm. just from the beginning, you gotta find $1,000 to pay for the education. Now from there, if you've got kids, you've gotta figure out childcare. How are you gonna pay for that when you're at school? Then if you're working in a job, uh, already you've got to make up for the lost hours and lost right. wages that you're you're not going to have when you're already living on the brink how are you going to do that mm-hmm. and then uh, even assuming you can figure out all of all of those things then when you show up for your class at 8 p.m. there's an immense amount of evidence that shows that if you've already been working a full-time day you're exhausted right. and the likelihood of you being successful in that is quite low so my view is of course we need more education but let's not overlook the power that cash has mm-hmm. to open up the opportunities to be able to take advantage what, of that education what about the cuts uh, you know
0: pushed by the Trump administration of you know these are lazy people? people and they have to work for their money. I mean, that is preposterous. That, yeah.
1: that, that, that well, not only does it's that out not, there. It's out there. Well, it's an
0: argument. It's a cynical argument of course that
1: it is. that, people, it's awful. It's that people make. And wow. It's cruelty from this
0: administration. It's cruel. It's flat out cruel.
1: Nothing. Yeah, absolutely. And 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 I think it's premised on perpetuating a, a myth. And specifically it's this myth of the welfare queen. Mm -hmm. Which you know was authored by none other than Ronald Reagan, but is still
0: permeating, and it's and it is a a, a, a,
1: well in the Reagan era. Yeah, but
0: let's give credit to Lee Atwater, who is (laughs) where the credit has died, but frankly deserves a lot of. And it's, it's,
1: it's a myth that has been um, really, really problematic and really destructive. It's racialized mm-hmm. in the sense that, uh, you know, it conjures up this kind of idea of, you know, uh, people who just hang out and live on the dole. Now, of course, the evidence doesn't show that if you look at labor force participation rates for African-American women, for instance, and you compare those to white men. Guess mm-hmm. which group works more African African American women. so the the, the the data shows that that is not true. And you know when you get actually get out there and talk to working people, mm-hmm. you know it doesn't take much to to actually see that that's not true. But it's a cynical kind of story that um, it's in the interest of uh, a lot of people in power to continue to um, to. But that's what they're pushing right now around around
0: all kinds of things: is that you have to work to get welfare, you have to you have to demonstrate that you can't. they have they it is never leaving our society this concept.
1: The, well, I, I'm hopeful that that the, the lazy poor. Uh, I'm hopeful that we can turn a corner. It's mm-hmm. not gonna it's not gonna evaporate tomorrow. I don't want mm-hmm. to overstate the case here, but I do think that there is um, a generational shift that's happening. That um, and specifically, if we can. Broaden the definition of work that we use mm-hmm. to really recognize what work is. I mean, it's it's sort of work similar to what happened with yeah. with marriage. Mm-hmm. You know, in the marriage fight, you know, for LGBT people for a very long time uh, there was a there was an argument about legalizing same sex marriage as mm-hmm. if it was like another kind of marriage, this mm-hmm. thing that's over here that's different. And then when the the movement shifted and started making the case that. No, marriage, wh- what is marriage fundamentally about? It's fundamentally about love and commitment. Mm-hmm. And Don't you love is love and marriage is, is, is marriage. And we need to make sure that the definition of marriage matches love and matches the mm-hmm. time that we live in. And so the the definition of marriage quite literally has expanded over time to recognize the kind of marriage that I, my husband yeah. and I are, are, right. are in, for instance. And so similarly with work, you know, when we talk about work all the time— clearly a a mom or a dad who's staying home with young kids who are under, particularly if they're under five or six and not in school, they're working. And we we Mm -hmm. use the word work to describe what they're doing. Similarly, people engaged in elder care. If you've got an Mm -hmm. aging parent at home, you're working. I make the case in the book that students, people involved in education, those people are working too. If we can expand the definition of work to recognize what people are doing, what you end up with, I of mean, course. is 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 recognizing the the role that that virtually every American is playing. they except in the, except the
0: people that are doing most of that work are people of color, women, doing two jobs, raising the kids, and we've got an issue around white you know white men essentially that don't recognize that that these are this is work. And they've been
1: historically excluded. Like right now, I was in I was in Jackson, Mississippi. Three weeks ago, Mm -hmm. um, meeting with a lot of young African-American moms Mm -hmm. who lived in public housing. And right now, many of them, you know, were, um, in fact, all of them were uh, sufficiently poor that they needed the safety net kinds of benefits. Right now, our safety net says, you know, what you're doing at home, taking care of your kids, no, no, that doesn't count. Mm-hmm. You got to go over to Burger King and get a seven dollar an hour job, and mind you, for every you know seven dollars that they make, they're docked about four or five dollars of, of government benefits that mm-hmm. get reduced. So their actual per hour earnings become quite small, in order to qualify for a whole host of benefits, because that's real work. Mm-hmm. But the work that you're doing at home is uh, doesn't count.
0: Well, there are those who they shouldn't have kids. It goes on. It goes. It's a deeply ingrained racism and. And well, and, I everything think to, and I think it has to change.
1: And I think it, you know we have to start somewhere. It's not this is going to be, this is going to be a long term kind of fight because it does tap into big cultural questions. So again, I don't want to overstate that um, that the, the speed with which this may happen. Mm-hmm. But I do think it is similar to something like the fight for marriage equality, which mm-hmm. you know over the course of decades. We did see well, a generational sensible, and cultural For the most part, shift.
0: for many, many, although still there's so much retrograde stuff going on. Not for everyone, yeah. You know, Chris, only uh, gay people want to get married and go into the military. I don't know if you know. <laughs> <laughs> no. <laughs> I wanted to go in the military. I did. I wanted to do both. Um, so, so once you start this in place, what do you hope to, what is the goal? Is to show success, show what? Or just watch how it works?
1: Well, I think um, I think we can start in cities and states and build a sense of uh,
0: momentum. Well, everything is happening in the cities Uh, and states that matters.
1: Most things are happening in the cities and states, although I do think that uh, I can talk a little bit about the opportunity too at the the federal level. So um, in my view, we should begin today, like what Mayor Tubbs is doing in Stockton. You could also do this at a state level. It'll be a more modest size, a few hundred Mm -hmm. dollars a month. Uh, But um, we can begin now and uh, see how it works, see how it changes the lives of people who are getting it. Again, we have a lot of evidence already to know, but specifically... So what,
0: how is it changing? People feel a little more relaxed. They can do...
1: People certainly feel more relaxed. I mean, um, the recipients of cash assistance, specifically through the earned income tax rate, the kids do better in school. They mm-hmm. stay in school for longer periods of time. They do better on tests. Health outcomes improve. Uh, people are hospitalized less often. They um, There are fewer complications in pregnancies. Uh, people um, in uh, who receive the Cherokee the guaranteed income from the Cherokee as they grow into adults have fewer uh, uh, mental health issues there's there's a lot of evidence about the effect of cat and all of this by the way is domestic we don't even have to go to the couple couple hundred studies that exist internationally that show all kinds of other other benefits you know domestic violence rates go down mm-hmm. in many in many cases and all of it You know, it's intuitive at the end of the day. If you have a little bit more financial stability in your life, you're able to live one step or two steps back from the brink. Mm -hmm. We're not talking about so much money that everybody wins the lottery and we're like all just like – Lazy. You know, hanging out, putting up our feet, you know, Mm -hmm. whatever the the worst – the 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 images that the Eating critics Cheetos. conjure <laughs> conjure Cheetos is
0: always involved
1: conjure up so there's a lot of evidence so um, so developing more of a track record at the city level and at the state level and then I do think long term at the federal level you know we just saw a tax bill
0: mm-hmm.
1: that got passed in um, at the end of last year which. Um, gave well, a massive was, cut that was
0: rich people's universal basic income gave a
1: massive cut to the 1% and to corporations and doubled down on what I consider a debunked theory of trickle down economics we've been we've been doing this for 40 years and median wages have not meaningfully budged and yet
0: the rich get richer
1: the rich get richer and they made the decision to double down on that now th- i think that there is a a movement already growing to repeal and replace that law and to rethink it and i do think that there's an opportunity to put a modernized earned income tax credit which essentially provide a guaranteed income mm-hmm. for working people at the center of that kind of bill. Mm-hmm. now whether that'll happen in 2021 20, or I don't know 2025 I mean you know right. who knows so many things so many things can change but um you know the 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 cynicism that's permeating in our culture about mm-hmm. change, um, in Washington and at other levels is the biggest hurdle. We have to begin to think uh, creatively and begin to organize uh, right. on these ideas uh, uh, you now. You know about Sheryl Sandberg's
0: I think with the college track people giving them cash because they need it for rent. She has a thing where she's giving away the people who are in college track. They get money so they can pay the rent. They can do summer internships they couldn't mm. afford. She's just giving them money because like, it's a similar concept um, because what happens is when they go to college through college track, poor kids don't know how to dress. They don't know how to network. They can't take summer jobs that are easy. Sometimes their parents rely on them, and so the concept is give them cash to pay for those things. Yeah, and I mean, give for, them that extra comfort.
1: I don't know that much about it, but from yeah. what you describe, it seems to make a lot of sense. I do think, you know, people often ask, what again? What, what, why is it that cash is so? I mean, I was on Financial Aid in college. Mm-hmm. The idea, Mark Zuckerberg and Dustin. Moskovitz, they they dropped out. And, Mm -hmm. you know, I was out here that first summer, Mm -hmm. and they decided to stay here, and I went back. Mm -hmm. And a lot of people say, well, do you regret that decision? Mm -hmm. You know, because on paper, it was the quote, unquote, (laughs) wrong decision from a financial perspective. And, you know, to be honest, it wasn't even ever really a decision for me because you had to go, because the idea, I mean, if I were to be here, what am I going to do, work at Starbucks all day and then come home to work at Facebook marketing? I guess I could have, but I was at Harvard and was the first in my family yeah. to have that kind of opportunity. And so right. anyway, my point is, is a lot well, of people it, in college now have right. a guaranteed income. Right. And it comes from their parents. Yep. And yep. my kid, you know, one day we'll have that too. So I'm in, in that category now. Yep. But a lot of other people don't. And yep. we have a responsibility That's to, a very to good point. even the playing field and to counteract how That's those generational about your own cycles own experience can
0: happen. there. Yeah, they could afford to be startup people in a different way. We're here with Chris Hughes. Um, he's one of the founders of Facebook. He is very interested in income inequality with his new book, Fair Shot rethinking inequality and how we earn. Um, changing workplace, you know, are you worried about what, you know, you're one of a technolo- you've benefited from technology financially and have been part of the technology sector for part of your life. Um, are you worried about job loss or things like that? Because that could even stress this this system even more. I am. You, you know, a lot of people um,
1: are convinced that artificial intelligence is going to create mass technical Unemployment. Um, I talked well, to I think a it's lot
0: of automation. There's a whole bunch of
1: it's automation. Trends. It's artificial intelligence. Exactly. Um, it's a it's Robotics. a combination. Exactly. It's a combination of of, mul- of multiple trends. You know, there are a lot of economists who think that's crazy, right. and I talked to a lot of them too. You know, um, Jason Furman, <laughs> who is a, played played prominent role in the Obama administration, is mm-hmm. particularly carved out a place, saying, you know, in the long term. Uh, this is this is um unlikely to 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 happen so um i'm concerned about it i don't but i also don't i'm not in the class where i'm you know here saying it's going to happen it's a fait accompli. it's it's a done deal it it it, it may or it may not but i what i do think the trends are very clear about is the increasing fragmentation of jobs already and it's the gig economy that is in, indicative of that the Lyft drivers mm-hmm. and mm-hmm. uber drivers but it's also the worker at Starbucks who can only get 25 hours mm-hmm. and who doesn't know next week if right. she'll get 10 right. or 40 yeah. and you know the the um or when. The, the idea that you 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 need to be able to plan you know, planning is um, is is made very very, very difficult. I mean, so you, thus you, you're you're constantly stressed if you don't know you're going to be able to make rent. Yeah, you have a job, you have some hours, but if you're not going to get enough, then uh, then you're, you're, you're constantly constant living state, on the constant on of instability. So I worry about the wholesale job loss, absolutely, mm-hmm. but I'm also personally um, really intent on, on um, making clear that that. You know, wherever you fall on whether or not that's the future or not mm-hmm. the future, we already need I to I think it's interesting. It. I,
0: you know, Mark Andreessen's a big proponent of this, that in the end it'll be like farming to manufacturing. We'll have more jobs than ever. And we, the reason I'm so interested in it this past year, um, we've done a special on MSNBC about it. We're going to do a lot more of them, um, is because he was saying, I said, yeah, but the blacksmiths, what happened to them? And he goes, I don't care what happened to the blasphemous. And I was like, yeah, but they had families and something happened, something not good happened to those people. Did they retrain? Did they, there was social unrest during that whole period. There was enormous social unrest um, with the farming to manufacturing economy. And we forget because we're a nation of, uh, you know, perpetually forgetting our history. Um, And it's happened several times, these shifts in, um, technologies, really, essentially. Um, and people and,
1: make the argument, too, around not just retraining, but mobility. You know, well, it, yeah, the the blacksmiths of today, you know, they should just move to
2: yeah, right, where but all can. the, the, the jobs gonna are. Who's going to teach them? Who's,
0: I just want to know who's going to,
1: well, the, we average, train every- the average move across state right. lines costs over $5,000. Right. And half of Americans don't, can't find $400 in case their car right. breaks down. And so this idea that you're just supposed to, you know, turn off the lights, pack up, turn right. off the lights, and, you know, magically move to a place where housing alone is probably five times as expensive no, exactly. as where you were I, before
0: I, It's. I think I want to get to the idea of this 1% this what this fragmentation, not just the fragmentation but the wealthiest concentration of wealth moving higher and higher up and small, to a smaller and smaller amount of people because I firmly believe there's a group of people at the top who've benefited from the future Uh, at the very top of the obscenely wealthy, um, but love the future. They will be able to change. They will be able to afford it. They'll be able to teach themselves. They're interested in teaching themselves. At the very bottom, you have the (laughs) the very poor. The education system has failed them. There's opiate addiction, of course, everywhere, but very concentrated here, bad nutrition, all kinds of things, all kinds of these cycles of never getting out um, in terms of health, in terms of mental health, in terms of money, everything else. Uh, Motivation. Why would you? Why don't you? Why would you move? Why would you have any motivation to improve yourself? Um, And then there's a vast group of people in the middle who, like the future, are scared of the future. And this group on the top is not pulling them up. Mm -hmm. Um, And presumably they would pull the ones below them up further. Mm -hmm. But there's no pulling up by the wealthy here. Here you're you're saying that the one percent should pay for this. We've just had a tax cut where the one percent got paid. What do you imagine this why the 1% person doesn't have this duty to take care? In San Francisco, it's the same thing. You can see the streets right now. And it's hard living here with people doing drugs on the streets. You are like, they're lying on the streets doing drugs in front of my house. This is not good as a taxpayer. And you feel badly for feeling that way, too. But most people don't feel badly about thinking about people in that way.
1: Well, I think a lot of the people that I talk to um, are cognizant of a sense of responsibility they have to other people. And, you know, it's it's in San Francisco, it's in New York, and so I'll I'll paint with a broad brush and I'll be a little bit more specific about what I mean. So I I think that there is a sense, um, particularly amongst people who've been successful in technology, Mm -hmm. that the rewards that have come um, are very much historically unique. Mm -hmm. I mean, we've never lived in a time where 20-year-olds are able to, you know, go from zero dollars to hundreds of millions of dollars, billions of dollars before. Mm-hmm. I mean, royalty is like the closest thing hundreds right. of years ago. And so um, that is, uh, I, I do think that there's a, a, a widening sense that something is happening in the economy that makes that possible. And it's happening at the exact same time that everybody else is having a hard time making its meet. That middle group that you're mm-hmm. discussing, I mean, those... That those folks have not gotten a raise in forty years, but the cost of living is thirty percent higher. So, mm-hmm. um, so I do think that there's a there's um, increasingly a sense of responsibility. Now, that's probably more on the left than mm-hmm. on the right, but my hope is to appeal not only to to a sense of of moral responsibility, but also a sense of pragmatism, mm-hmm. and by that I mean what we know about what creates long term economic growth is, you know, um, is that consumer spending is the biggest driver of that. And if you put $100 in the pockets, really, of anybody in your description there, mm-hmm. anybody in the middle or at the bottom, they're going to spend most of that money on whatever is most um, urgent for them, housing, healthcare, mm-hmm. education. You put $100 in the pockets of the 1%, I and mean, we know Stay. it goes into it goes into a bank account. Mm-hmm. It goes to work and complex financial uh uh, moves, But it's not part of the productive economy. So there, there, there was a study that the Roosevelt Institute did last year that modeled out if you gave $500 of a guaranteed income to every American, what would happen to the economy? And the model shows that over the next eight years, GDP would grow by 7%. which is based on just that amount. Based just on that amount. And so, my, my argument is that I think in the long run, a guaranteed income is good for everyone, certainly for the middle class and the poor who need the funds the most, but it should also be good for, uh, the for, for, the for, for the wealthy as well, because it creates a kind of broad-based economic growth. So j- just specifically to talk about the pay-for for a moment, I think tax rates on income uh, of $250,000 and higher should come into line with their historical average of 50%. Mm-hmm. That's where they were for much of the 20th century, for the decades after the Second World mm-hmm. War, really up until nineteen eighty. That's in line with where they were. And it just so happens that that's the period when economic growth was not only the the, the the biggest, but also the most broadly shared. And we had plenty of innovation, plenty of smart people starting all kinds of new companies. The idea that if taxes were higher on that income that, you know, yeah. we wouldn't have started Facebook. I mean, that's just not not it's nonsense. true. No, it's not. And the way that that would play out is because it's income above. If you're making three hundred thousand dollars, which mm-hmm. in some parts of the country, you know, definitely makes you wealthy, but not mm-hmm. um, part. Of, let's say part of the winner take all. Mm-hmm. What 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 you're talking about is a few th- more, uh, like uh, seven thousand dollars more, mm-hmm. in taxes to fund a guaranteed income. If you made ten million dollars, what we're talking about is your tax bill would be one point five million dollars higher mm-hmm. than it is today. And it is my view that that is more in line with um, where our our finances should be, and and we we can and should ask the members of that one percent to be footing the bill to make sure that everybody else can can uh, enjoy the economic opportunities. They don't want to, but
0: you're with a group of people in tech who talk about that. But you know, I deal with a lot of uh, people from Wall Street and stuff like that, and I am always astounded by the continued greed of incredibly wealthy people. Um, I, was talking I think it's to, shortsighted. I mean, I, 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 I would think agree. In the long term I was talking to someone who's enormously wealthy the other day, and they were driving me crazy. And I finally said, <laughs> "You know, you're so poor. All you have is money. Like, I don't know what to say." He was so insulted. He was like, why well, could you say that to me?" I'm like, "I just, you're so poor. I just don't know how to explain it to you. You're just—it's astonishing. I'm, I'm constantly surprised by it. When you get to a certain level of income, and you can't understand because you know you don't want to give it to the government. The government's coming incompetent. Like, I don't want to give it to those bozos to." Well, that, I mean, and Like, I feel like that when I pay, I pay a lot of taxes and I'm like, I don't want to give it to those crazy military well, people. Like, everybody has a thing. That's why, I mean, that's why
1: the earned income tax credit, the, right. the structure that I'm talking about using to build the guaranteed income, I mean, it has historically been really popular you on know, the right, as well as the I left. Would like every, to give it to regular people. Every yeah. president with people in the United States statement. since 1975, yeah. Republican and Democrat alike, every single one, has meaningfully expanded the earned income tax credit. And it's for that reason, not only because of the evidence that shows it right. works, but because there's a sense that well, it's on the a good right gimme. It's that you a good gimme. That, well, I think there's a sense on the right that 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 we should uh, put. The money in, in the hands of, of people who can Which figure out how to the use tax. it themselves. It's, that was the argument
0: for the tax cuts.
1: Well, but in that case, it's for the 1%, yeah, not, but then, for, oh, no, not it's, for. Didn't you not hear for, Paul
0: Ryan? Didn't you hear what he. No. Well,
1: yeah. that is, I mean, talk it's about absurd. a cynical uh, kind of. I mean, every nonpartisan analysis of the tax bill shows that yeah. there are massive
0: well, disproportionate talk returns about to a c- the budget. I like what you're saying, talk to, about a cynical at this moment in history. So let's finish up. We only have a few more minutes uh, talking about politics right now. You're in. How do you look at the political scene? Your husband's working in the resistance um, what do you and, and Facebook's role in it Facebook's gotten smacked hard not and you don't have to just talk about Facebook but please do um, Twitter Facebook Google YouTube
1: well uh, I mean so many things I think the politics I mean the news coming out of Washington is it's hard to imagine it being more depressing however I do think that Trump's election has been a wake-up call on the left and the right that um, a lot of people feel that the system is rigged Against mm-hmm. them, and they are willing to embrace <laughs> you know uh very very different perspectives and it's scary when uh, Trump is in the White House uh, pushing the policies that he is pushing, but I think the opportunity is people are are open to quote unquote kinds of crazier kinds of ideas mm-hmm. you know um Guaranteed income a few years ago w- was, uh, you know, on the French I think it's increasingly becoming um, a, a part of the the mainstream. So um, I, I think, though, that we've got to counteract the sense that um, uh, you know, things are just going to always be the way that they are. The economy is mm-hmm. going to always be the way it is. Mm-hmm. The politics is always going to be the mm-hmm. way there is. And there's a lot of evidence in the enthusiasm on the left. You know, you look at the, the women's march. This march is planned in a couple weeks mm-hmm. around um, gun control. violence and right. uh, across the country. There are a lot of reasons to be hopeful. As you said at the top of the conversation, votes matter. Mm-hmm. You know, and what happens this November, and then in November of of twenty twenty, the only people that um, are voting
0: are thank goodness for African American women. That's it. The rest of them, the millennials, they want to smack them upside the head. And specifically so Facebook, I people. think you know,
1: you, um, I think Facebook is increasingly recognizing the the responsibility that Slow. that Slow it has Chris. slowly but increasingly and mm. and overdue.
0: Yeah.
2: Sorry but about to, that American
0: democracy problem, but I mean it,
1: it was I slow. Mean, it was slow, absolutely. And
0: we were um, all screaming about it a year ago, and they just the,
1: they I, slow rolled us it, all it, the way to today. It has been slow, but I think what's Why happened. Why is
2: that?
0: To, you worked with these people.
2: Oof.
1: Um, I, you know, I I'm I would speculate about that just as much as you or anyone else. I think that there was a sense that um, Facebook as a platform was a uh, you know a kind of neutral algorithm. Mm-hmm. You know, it's not, it's just a thing that, you know, um, platform, works in it. the basement. It's mm-hmm. like, he just surfaces things and, you know, there's nobody's... I'm giving you my... Mm-hmm. <laughs> when in reality, I mean, humans make the decisions about how these algorithms work. Right, and right. right now we're seeing um, a different uh, a different approach from Facebook. I mean, with local news in particular, right. I, I find that the initiative um, around local news that I've, I mean, I haven't talked to anybody at Facebook mm-hmm. about this. I've read the same journalism that you've done and many others have done to be some of the most interesting. I mean, they're specifically working mm-hmm. uh, with a dozen local news outlets not to do, to do two things. One, to help them uh, understand how to, you know, surface their journalism to bigger mm-hmm. and broader audiences on the platform, but also to adjust the algorithms to make sure more people see it, mm-hmm. which is really remarkable, right? Because it, it is a normative statement. That local news matters mm-hmm. and is important, right? And that specifically, Facebook has a responsibility to ensure that um, that people see it. Now, is that going to be enough? Absolutely not. We got to think about foreign powers. Why um, didn't they see it meddling it was, in the election? Aren't they geniuses?
0: I mean, what I mean, I'm not. I'm being reductive there, but you know what I mean.
1: I mean, your guess is as good as, is as good as, uh,
0: as mine on that. I mean, I think that they're um, they're turning a corner now and, and mm-hmm. are are and uh, understand are focused. The on it. I literally was just in a converse, uh, an argument on Twitter with the um, head of ads, who was like, "Well, it's not our fault." And I'm like, "Stop! Just stop talking!" I think I what said, "Hush." Was he, he was saying that it wasn't their fault. It wasn't truly their fault. And and it, it being the Russia. Oh, the Russian stuff. And I think I just said, "Hush! Stop talking! Just just stop, please."
1: Yeah, I think it's pretty There's clear. I mean, you have a responsibility right. to make sure foreign powers don't, um, right. you know, uh, a, d- don't, don't hack our elections. And the problem is, OK, well, how do you define hack? But, you know, propagating fake news on a platform right. Right. Um, to support one candidate over another right. and, uh, is, uh, is, you a know, problem.
0: Is, is a problem. Well, you know, the thing is, they um, to their defense, it's a company, not a government, fighting a government. I know, but it's a government, right? You're made of faith.
1: I mean, it's 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 a company, but this idea that companies don't have responsibility. Oh yes, of I course. Mean, but I'm saying worldview. our government
0: didn't intervene. Well, you know, the, these companies can't do it by themselves. This has got to be. An well, effort.
1: yes, government has. I mean, if if I mean, not the man, Trump talking about but the, the the Obama you know, administration
0: certainly had a responsibility here to be more active.
1: I, I absolutely and I'm worried about the election this fall. I mm-hmm. mean, you know, we have evidence to show that the. Russians in particular, I mean, it's very clear, mm-hmm. tried very hard to hack the voting systems in um, several states. Mm-hmm. And we have not made—I I, I I have seen no progress this, from a federal progress. perspective no in making sure that these elections are going to be safe and um Secure. I mean, we, there's been some, some media nerd. coverage of, of yeah. it, but frankly, I think there's been more media coverage of Facebook's uh, role than uh, the the imperative for yeah. a stronger security system. And clearly, we need more coverage of both. We need right. I think on all of this. We need to be talking about it all much more robustly because this problem is not right. is not going to to go away. Well, wow, this particular
0: administration is so cynical as to be—it's a disturbingly cynical administration, which doesn't mind creating havoc. That's really it. I mean, in in the Mm. end, it's a a group of people that love havoc and are also not very smart. So it's— Well,
1: but, I mean, but to say that
0: sort of suggests that there's nothing—I mean, we have a responsibility.
1: Democracy, you know, whatever your politics, democracy— um, and the democratic system, uh, you know, it's the responsibility of people in power to govern and and um, of and defend but, it. And of course, of you course know, But you
0: know, we have a president who just joked that it was good that the Chinese. Pre- I mean, you know, like, come on, like it, it's so funny because it's sort of let's like. Let's just
1: not excuse that. Let's not I'm be resigned. No, I'm not it's saying you are, that, yeah. but like, we just can't have this air of resignation. Like, oh, they're just crazy. and Nothing's ever going to happen. Oh, they're not it's like, crazy. You
0: know, crazy, like you know, I, they're not crazy. It's just that it's it's impossible to do anything when good people don't stand up. And I'm talking about the Republicans, uh, you know, most of the time because the enablers to me are the real problem now, Mm. Um, which is interesting. But it'll be done by voting. So, Chris, um, when do you imagine you have—we're going to finish up. When do you imagine success for this?
1: The more this idea is talked about in the mainstream, uh, not just in political conversations but around, you know— Dining room tables over coffee. And over, how you? Put it I, out I think it is that's, that's 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 success in the short term. In the long run, clearly we want public policy right. to change. But um, you know, success in the next couple of years will be people talking seriously about how can we get a guaranteed income done in one way or another? It may be exa- through their income tax credit. It may be through other kinds of ways. But the more that we're rolling up our sleeves and thinking about how do you guarantee financial stability through right. cash,
0: right? That, that's, the su- that's the success in the near term. You have actually convinced me now. I'm thinking of it differently. You know, it's an area I'm interested in. <laughs> you know, I agree with you. I think giving people, I'm listen, I'd rather than the latest tank or what, the latest, whatever the hell our government's spending money on, I'd rather give it to average people who need a break. Um, which would be nice, which would be nice so they can get one um, among our many, many problems in this country. Um, anyway, we have a lot of great things, too. Um, and it, our generosity, uh, although some people don't agree with it, would be one of them. Anyway, Chris, it was great talking to you. I you've had a fascinating career since, um, you stopped funding like fancy magazines, but this is much better than fancy magazines and people who hate you no matter what you do just say so you know I'll I yeah, could have told you that told me to Chris. Do it. just give away money to people who will actually appreciate it but you know buy a media company still I don't know which one you should buy but you should um, I, I appreciate the effort I think I'm out of that you're out of that business no more Chris Hughes there's an attorney for sale I don't know there's always something for sale Chris um, it was great talking to you thanks for coming on the show if you enjoyed the interview as much as I did be sure to subscribe to the show you can find all our past interviews in whatever app used to listen to this are on our website, recode.net slash podcast. If you have a minute, please leave us a review on Apple Podcasts. That helps other people find the show. Now that you're done with this, you can check out our other Recode Radio podcasts. On Recode Media with Peter Kafka, you hear no-nonsense interviews with some of the smartest people in media and entertainment. I also host Two Embarrassed to Ask, along with Lauren Good of The Verge, where we answer all of your questions about consumer tech. And on Recode Replay, you can find audio from all of Recode's live events, including the Code Conference and Code Media. Thanks for listening to this episode of Recode Decode. Thanks to our editor, Joel Robbie, and our producer, Eric Johnson.